Oh, that's a good setup for prayer, huh? Praise the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for your love. Thank you for your love that is Lord, that is indescribable. It's so far beyond our ability to grasp, but in faith we hold it tightly. Love that caused you to leave heaven and pursue us into the broken planet here called Earth. Thank you so much. It's good. It's good to break every seven days for a few minutes and come in here and get together and to remember what life is really all about. It's all about you. It's all about who you are. It's all about what you have done. It's all about who we are in you through faith. Thank you so much. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that is here with us today as we come in the name of your Son. Thank you for the truth that you have given to us, that you inspired over about 1,500-year period of time to 40-some authors, every walk of life, and yet in that great epic story is just one overall perfectly developed truth about the love of God displayed in the redemption that comes through Jesus Christ. Thank you so much. Thank you for your truth. Lord, this morning as we open up your truth out of the fifth chapter of Romans. I'm asking, Lord, that you would help me to hide behind the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I would say, as the men said that came to the disciples of Jesus, they said, Sir, we would see Jesus. I pray that that would happen here this morning, that you'd keep me out of the way, that you'd help me, that you would help us to see Jesus clearly today in the truth of your word. Thank you that we can come in a corporate time of prayer and bring our needs and our requests to you, bring our brokenness to you, our joys and our sorrows. Thank you for that. I know that you are hearing and interpreting the movements of each heart here. We just commit those things to you. And I ask you that you just activate now the gift of preaching, that you would take your timely, timeless word and use it for eternal purposes for your glory. 
In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Wow, it's good to see some people here at the second service. It was about one over here and two here, and no, it was a little better than that, but I told the first service, I was just reminded of the Marine advertising logo when I got up, the few, the proud, the Marines, like the few, the faithful, the 4th of July church attenders. Romans chapter 5, would you open your Bibles and put your finger there? We're going to be looking at three verses, actually three verses that we looked at last week. We're going to dig a little deeper. There's so much more there that I don't want to pass it by. I want to give you a principle of interpretation, an important principle uh, that'll help this morning, but not just this morning, it will help you throughout your life as you are a student of the Word of God. There is a, there is a key to Bible study that is a very um, helpful key to help Bible study actually become transformational, life-transforming. And it's, it's very simple, and it's, it's just this, to learn to ask questions of the text to learn to ask the right questions of the text. And that principle is predicated upon this conviction that God is the one that inspired these letters to be written. And He did that for a very specific purpose. He did that because He has some things that He wanted to tell us. And we have some things that we need to hear from Him. And so the key is trying to find out the questions that God was answering in the text. So I can't, I can't give you all of the rules, nor do I even know them all, about how to learn to develop those questions. But it's really a, it's a lifetime of learning but the more that you work at that, the better you get at learning to bring questions to the text that will, I believe, a lot of times if you get the right question, what happens is this. It's like a key that unlocks the, the floodgates to the dam of God's truth, and it opens it up in the hydraulic pressure like a dam door opening. Hydraulic pressure just causes that, that water to rush out of that opening in the same way a, a, a right question, a key question can be like a key that, an open, that opens the dam of God's truth and causes the water of life to just flow out and break into and bring its life-giving, life-reviving, life-refreshing nourishment to your soul. So let me give you what I am convinced is the fundamental question that God intended to answer in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. There is a fundamental question. I believe that God, the reason God inspired these 10 verses to be written was to answer 
this question. It could be worded a few different ways. Here is one way that you might word it. How could one man's death provide the way for all humanity to be saved? I want you to note that the question is not, what did one man do to save humanity? That's a different question. The question is, how did what he did actually accomplish it? We could say it another way. How could one life and one action from that one life provide salvation for every life? I believe that is the fundamental question that God wanted to answer in these 10 verses. So we're going to spend some time just talking about that. We answered the question in part last week, but we'll dig a little deeper. There are a few different phrases that I want to jump into that have to do with really foundational doctrines uh, in Scripture that maybe for some you've never, you've kind of thought about these but have never really had them answered. We answered, uh, looked at some of the phrases in verses 13 or 12, 13, and 14 last week, but we're going to look at a few more this week. Let me just read that passage, Romans chapter 5, 12 through 14. Paul wrote, Therefore, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come." first segment of that that I want to hone in on this morning is this phrase, sin came into the world through one man. Some object to that statement. They object to that statement on the grounds that evil existed before Adam. So why does the Scripture say that sin came into the world through one man? Well, there's a very simple way because I do believe that Sin was in the world or the universe before Adam. So what is, how are we to understand that statement right there? I believe simply this, that the phrase is meant to say that sin entered the world of mankind through one man. And if you'll just look at the context, that's clearly what it's talking about. Because it says that the consequences of that one man's sin brought death to mankind. The consequences were directed at mankind. So the emphasis here is that through Adam, sin entered into the world of humanity. Where then did sin come from in the first place? What is the origin of evil? Have you ever asked that question, thought through that? Well, and here's the objection that many struggle with, have a hard time wrestling with. God is the creator of all, and God, 
according to the biblical narrative, is supposed to be a God of holiness and a God of righteousness, and he created a world in perfection, then how into that world did sin come? Did God do that? I think it's important that we answer this question because it's related to the text here, talking about sin in the world and the, and the placement or origin of sin in the world. Sin did precede Adam. It preceded Adam in the person of Satan where sin originated. God did create a perfect world. The biblical narrative is clear that God created a world in perfection, in righteousness, in justice. And in that world, He created some spirit beings. We call them angels and archangels and seraphim and cherubim or cherubs. Those different titles are ranks, they're, they're ascending levels, they're different degrees of authority that God established in the structure of these spirit beings. And there was one spirit being that God created preeminent above all, and that spirit being was Lucifer. He was the pinnacle of God's created order. Prior to the creation of mankind, listen, Ezekiel 28, 12. Listen to how Ezekiel describes Lucifer. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Folks, Lucifer was the chief gem in God's brilliant creation. Ezekiel goes on to say that Lucifer was blameless until, listen, Ezekiel 28, 14, and 15. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you, God is talking, I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. God did not create Lucifer with sin. Lucifer was a perfect creation. The epitome of perfection in the created world. And he was blameless. And then unrighteousness was found in him. How did that happen? Isaiah tells us. Isaiah 14, 13. And Lucifer says... I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly. You see, Lucifer tried to ascend from that position of preeminence that God had given him to a higher position to actually come beside God himself. He asserted his will into the created order where there should really only be one will, and that's God's. And because of that act of rebellion and him trying to climb the very mount of God, he was cast out, cast down, Scripture says. That is the 
origin of evil, the origin of sin in the universe. When in the mind, in the heart of Lucifer, he said, I will be like God. One more point of clarification that might be a little confusing in our study from last week. We talked extensively about the federal headship of Adam, about Adam being a representative head for the human race. We're going to talk a little bit about that in a few minutes here again. But the principle in that has to do with our solidarity to Adam, with all of the human race's connection to Adam, and how in Adam, when he sinned, we sinned. Not we sin now because we inherited his sin nature, true, but more than that, in his sin in the garden, in that one act, the Bible says we were party to that. We sinned in that, and the guilt laid upon Adam for that was laid upon our shoulders, and justly so. That's what the idea of federal headship is, original sin. Now, why then does it talk about Adam being the one through whom sin came? Other than Satan, who sinned before Adam? Somebody's got to know the answer to that. His little lady, right? Right? I mean, that's true. Scripture says that's true. Look at 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So the order was Eve was deceived and transgressed, and then Adam also sinned and rebelled against God. So why, just to try to make sense of this, why then does the Bible in no place, in no place, lay the fault at the feet of Eve for bringing the condemnation of sin into the world? Why Adam? Very specifically Adam. Extensively here in the 10 verses that we're covering, Eve is not mentioned one time. It is Adam's fault. It is a consequence of Adam's one act of sin. Why is that? Well, at first glance, that verse that we read in 1 Timothy 2, it looks like it is laying the lion's share at the feet of Eve, but when understood, it's really not doing that. I want you to look at it closely. It says that Adam was formed first. There's headship and leadership in that responsibility that comes with that. And then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. Did you read that? 
Would you say that with me? Ready, go. Adam was not deceived. Eve was deceived, but not Adam. Folks, I can only see one implication there, one truth to gain from that, and that's this. Eve was, anybody ever use the word snookered? Eve was tricked. She was deceived. Satan, the serpent, the wily devil came to her and deceived her and led her into making a transgression, a wrong decision, a sin. But Adam, was Adam deceived? No, Adam was not deceived. He walked into that with his eyes wide open. Adam clearly understood that what he was doing was directly against the expressed command of God. And with full knowledge and willful decision, he stepped over the line. He asserted his will, and he said, God, I know you've given me everything north, south, east, and west of this plot of ground on which this tree stands, but I want this plot of ground as well. And I am going to claim it as my own. I am going to be Lord of this peace like you have made me of all creation. And in that rebellion, he sinned and implicated as the federal head of humanity the entire human race. So that in him, acting as our representative, each one of us sinned and his guilt became our guilt in the moment of that first sin. That really needs to be understood if many other passages of the Word of God about sin is going to be understood. We talked lengthy last week about how that's not a curse. I mean, it looks like a curse, right? I'm being blamed for what somebody else did. The judgment of God is on me, not because of my own sin, but first and foremost because of the sin of the first man, Adam. And we say, well, wait a minute, that's not fair. But in fact, it's actually gracious and loving we talked about that last week because if God did not judge you in Adam and he judged you based upon your own merits, how many of you sin? How many of you are sinning by lying, by not raising your hand right now? You're guilty. So if it rested upon you, all of us sinners, what hope would we have? Nothing. Zero. Nilch. But it doesn't rest upon us. It rests upon, our guilt rests upon a federal head, a representative. And the beauty of that, the grace of God that's in that, the love of God that's in that is that not only does our guilt rest upon our federal head, but there's another federal head that our righteousness can rest upon. Because just like God judged us in the one man, he can now judge us in the second man. 
And praise God that he chose to set it up that way because if he had not, we would all be hopelessly hell-bound, period. Critical doctrine to understand the doctrine of the federal headship of Adam and the federal headship of Christ, which is what this entire passage is about. So that brings us then into that concept of how sin came into the world through one man and that man's name was Adam. And in that sin, he implicated the entire human race and put us all in the guilt. There is another objection that's raised, and I want to focus in on just the last part of that phrase, really on one word, and the word is one. That sin came into the world through one man. Here's the objection that is raised to that. Raised by a large portion of humanity, those that are not in the church but at least understand the concept of original sin or that doctrine that we've just been talking about. They object to that, and the objection, I mean, at least years ago in our country, was really based upon the major roadblock provided to it by the evolutionary hypothesis. That theory that talks about the survival of the fittest Natural selection and the survival of the fittest. That theory that was bought wholesale a generation or two ago, that theory had no room for the idea of original sin. Here's why, of it coming through one man. Because that's not the way it happened, right? There was a ascension. There was a debased, form of savage creatures that over long eons of time and over incremental changes ascended from that based low place to become this preeminent overall intelligent being by its own inherent rising power and influence in the world. So there's this story in that evolutionary hypothesis of this ascension from debased to preeminent. That's the direction. And so it can't be, if there is sin, that it could come through one man because it would be a whole species that were slowly developing and coming into mankind. Do you see how that theory would not even fit in any way with that? Folks, but the Bible tells a radically different story of mankind. In fact, one that is 180 degrees different. The story of the Bible is not that man started savage and debased and ascended, but that man was created 
preeminent. That man was created in this high and exalted place. And then mankind in the sin of Adam leaped off of that height, off of that preeminent place into the depraved downward spiral that Paul describes in Romans chapter 1. He talks about it as being this spiral that goes down and down into heinous depravity. So the Bible says the story is one of descension. It was high and exalted and it goes down and down into more of a debased, depraved reality. And that uh, evolutionary hypothesis says, no, it goes the opposite way. It starts low and debased and rises in preeminence. And folks, here's the problem. Now in this day, the tenets of the evolutionary hypothesis, natural selection, survival of the fittest have been in basically a wholesale way now rejected by science. It is no longer the, I mean, scientists today that know their stuff, and I don't mean Christian scientists, I mean across the board reject the tenets of the evolutionary hypothesis. But the problem is that out of that time period, at least as I see that history, there was a birth child that came out of that theory of evolution. And the birth child was humanism. And humanism fit perfectly with that idea of ascension because humanism says this, man is inherently basically good and you give him enough time and enough information, he is going to clean up all of the problems and ills of humanity. But what happened was a great inconsistency when the theory and the tenets of evolution were no longer seen as tenable. They were no longer accepted as, as reasonable. They still held on to the idea developed out of that faulty paradigm, they held tightly to the idea that man is basically good and will get better and better and have closed their eyes. I mean, just shut the Bible and, and just forget about the Bible for a minute. You don't need it. Just look at history. Are we getting better and better? Are we getting worse and worse? I mean, an adolescent could answer that question. Technology is increasing. Information is increasing. But don't confuse information with goodness. They're a radically different thing. And so, this idea of sin entering the world through one man, as it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, is a critical doctrine to understand that flies in the face of at least what science held to in a past generation and that many who are not scientists having been influenced by that still hold to today. 
What I want to do now is I want to go to verse 14 and highlight just one phrase and finish off the message with just highlighting and developing this one phrase. It says in verse 14, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. We talked about that last week, why that worked that way. But the phrase is this that I want you to focus on. That Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Two questions. That's referring to Christ. That Adam was a type of Christ. Two questions. What does the word type mean in the Greek? And second question. How was Adam a type of Christ? So, what does the word type mean? In the Greek, the word is tupos. And in its etymology, its development over time, you know how words develop and grow or evolve in their meaning, that word originally meant the mark that is left when something or someone is struck. And a mark is left from being struck. That word tupos was the mark. Then the word came to mean a mark that was left by an object like a printing press and the little metal figures on a printing press in the shape of an, a letter of the alphabet that would hit the paper and leave its mark. That's where we get our word, can you guess? type from, tupos. And then finally, the word came to mean or refer to or describe an, an act, a circumstance, or an individual that was a type of someone who was to come. That it was someone that was prefiguring in their life the reality of something that was coming later, a person that was coming later. And it's that use of the word that is given in Romans chapter 5, verse 14, when it says that Adam was a type of Christ. Now, that word does not mean like it talks about Jesus being an exact representation of the Father. That's not the word that is used there. The word type does not mean a perfect exact representation. But it does mean that there are clear similarities. And so, what I want to do in just a couple minutes as I close, I want to show you the sim just three similarities between the person of Adam as the type of Christ and Christ who was to come. And then the next time we look at Romans 5, I'm going to show you the contrast, the differences between Adam and Christ in this passage. So what are the similarities? How was Adam a type of Christ? I'll give you just three. The first one is this, and I've already mentioned it, that both Adam and Christ were the heads of humanity. 
They were the federal or representative heads over the human race. That brings us back to that question. How could one life and one act from that one life provide salvation for every life? Remember, that's the fundamental question in Romans 5, 12 to 21. How could that happen? Why did the death of Christ work for the salvation of humanity? It worked because Adam was a representative head, and in his sin, by that one act in the garden, he implicated humanity in his guilt, all of us guilty, sinning in him in that one sin, so that the principle of solidarity, of connection with Adam, became influential over us. And on the other side of that very same principle, the principle of solidarity, the one man, Jesus Christ, is the second federal head or representative over over humanity so that by his one act, by his one act of death on the cross, he can provide salvation and give his righteousness to every Man, it's the principle of solidarity that works on either side for good or for bad. It's a principle that God established through which he condemns us in guilt and frees us in grace. So both Adam and Christ were the federal heads of humanity. Here's the second principle that's a part of that. One act, universal impact. One act, universal impact. I just mentioned that briefly. Adam's one sin in the garden. What did that sin do? It brought guilt. And what was the result of that guilt? It brought the, condem- the just condemnation of a holy, righteous God. And that's our sin and our guilt. Not we sin because He gave us a sinful nature, though that's true, but we sinned in His one sin. And because of that, we are guilty in His one sin. And because of that, we are judged and condemned by God in His one sin. So that the wrath of God is over all of the human race, one act, universal impact. And in the same way, in a similar way, Adam as a type of Christ, Christ's one act, his one act of death on the cross provided the way for us to be freed from our guilt for the implication of Adam's sin to be shed and the righteousness of Christ to be put on so that we are no longer under the law, but we are now under grace. And then thirdly, third similarity, both Adam 
and Christ were given a bride by the Father. Both Adam and Jesus Christ were given a bride by the Father. I love this similarity. Think back to the story. If you know it in the garden, Adam needed a companion, and so God caused him to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, God opened his side, opened the flesh of his side, and removed from him a rib, and from that rib he fashioned Eve. And he gave Eve to Adam for at least three reasons. He gave Eve to Adam to be a companion, an intimate companion. And he gave Eve to Adam to be a helpmate, a co-worker, to work alongside of him. And he gave Eve to Adam so that she could, with him, reign over the created order. Them both having been given dominion. God gave that bride taken from the side of Adam to Adam. Jesus Christ hung on the cross. And as he hung on the cross, he bowed his head and he fell into the slumber of death. And as he hung there, a Roman guard And remember, folks, why did Jesus hang there? He hung there by the set will and predetermined counsel of the Father. And as he hung there sleeping in death, a Roman soldier took a spear and thrust it into his side and the flesh of his side opened up and from that flesh flowed water and blood to prove his death. And by the death of the Son, through the atoning blood shed by the Son, do you know what the Father did through that? He created a bride for Jesus Christ, the bride of the church. And why did he give that bride to Jesus Christ? He gave that bride to be an intimate, close companion to Jesus Christ. He gave that bride so that that bride would work alongside of him. And he gave that bride so that that bride would with him for all eternity reign with Him over all of creation. They are similar because the God of heaven gave Adam a bride from his side as his companion and helpmate and co-regent. And the Father God from the open side of Christ birthed a bride to be his companion and co-laborer and co-regent in the universe. 
So let me just wrap this all up then. All of the doctrines that we've looked at and the picture of the similarity. Basically, folks, it comes down to this. There are two humanities. And there are only two humanities. One more verse that I need to read. There will never be another federal head. There are two and only two. There will never be a third, a fourth, a fifth. 1 Corinthians 15.45 Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a life-giving, a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. There is a first Adam and there is a what? A last Adam. There will never be another. So the picture is this. There are two humanities. There's one humanity existing under the headship, under the federal headship of Adam, the man under law, guilty, under the condemnation of God and his wrath, headed for hell. And there's one more humanity under the second federal head, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ, who doesn't live under the law, but lives under the covenant of grace, whose eternal destiny is to reign with him forever. You're either under one head, a part of the first humanity, or you are under the second head, a part of the new humanity. Which are you? That is the question, the greatest question of your eternity, folks. Under which head will you be judged? It will be one or the other. You'll be judged under Adam's sin and guilt with the wrath of God or you'll be judged under Christ's obedience and His righteousness and the lavished riches and grace of God. Where are you? Here's the beauty of the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ, you can move from being under the condemned, hopeless headship of Adam to in a moment, by a free gift, simply by faith in your second head, Jesus Christ, be put under the second Adam birthed into a new humanity, freed from condemnation and lavished with grace simply by faith in what Jesus has done. That's why what Jesus did works. Would you please stand? Worship team, would you come? We're going to sing a song of closing as we take communion. What a perfect, what a perfect text and study.
to follow with communion the elements representing that which saves the broken bread, the broken body of Jesus, and the juice, the spilled blood of Jesus that paid for sin. So ushers are going to come. I'm just going to have them do that right now. Begin to pass the elements. You take, if you want to participate in communion, you're identifying yourself in faith with Jesus Christ as your head. You take the bread and the juice as it's passed and consume it as you remember what Christ has done for you. And as you do that and as you remember, we will sing.